All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter number 5. James chapter number 5. It's great to have my family in the service with me today. It's, uh, it's rare that that happens. My, my sister uh, and her husband, uh, he serves as youth pastor, so it's, it's uh, just a rare occasion that we have an opportunity to worship together. And um, so this is a special day for me. Thankful to have my mom with me. Thankful for this body that's continued to lift us up in prayer. This text that we're going to look at this evening certainly is timely uh, for myself. I believe in God's providence and allowing me to study this more in depth during the season of my life to remember the power that there is in prayer. And I uh, pray that it will be an encouragement to you all uh, as we consider what a grace prayer is for the believer. The title of this evening's message is The Reflex of Prayer. The reflex of prayer. Would you join me as we open an order of prayer? Father God, I just pray right now that you would meet with us, that your Holy Spirit would stir our hearts, that we would be challenged to consider your word. Where else can we go, Lord? You alone have the words of life. I pray that you would awaken our cold hearts, that you would draw us to a place of dependence upon you that the things of this world would grow strangely dim and we would look forward to you. Thank you that we have a promise that you will complete the work that you have begun. And until that work is complete, you have given us this means of grace, this thing that we call prayer, this opportunity to communicate with you, the Father, through the work of the Son, that we can come boldly before the throne of grace this evening. What an incredible, amazing, wondrous privilege the prayer is. So Father, I pray this evening as we continue to work through James and as we grow into these last few weeks of this study, I pray that you would do something great in our heart. That as we hear, listen, and respond, I pray that we would be changed. We would not be the forgetful hearer, but we would be a doer of your word even this evening. That the reality of eternity, the reality of spiritual warfare, the reality of life and death, that our life is but a mist, a vapor, as James has taught us, that we would not presume upon tomorrow, but we would wake up to the realities that you've called us to go to make disciples. Pray that we would leave with a sense of urgency. Pray that we would leave with a sense of intentionality. 
to be a committed follower of you. Not in our own strength, but in yours. We pray these things, Father, in your name. Amen. The reflex of prayer. Ian Bounds in his book, Power Through Prayer, speaks to this discipline of prayer. Spiritual work is taxing work, E.M. Bounds says, and men are loath to do it. Praying, true praying, costs an outlay of serious attention and of time, which flesh and blood do not relish. Have you felt that in your own life in regards to the discipline of a prayer? There's something about prayer that reveals the reality of spiritual warfare. That we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but rather there is a spiritual onslaught of temptation and distraction that wars in our own members in this world that we live in. Prayer in itself exposes the frailty of the human state. Have your best intentions to labor with the Lord in prayer? Found yourself in the garden sleeping? Has prayer, the communion with your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, fallen on hard times? Have you allowed yourself to let that book on the shelf collect a little bit of dust? Prayer. What an incredible gift, but yet how foolishly we have stewarded it over the years of our life. Prayer is hard. But for the true Christian, prayer should be our greatest joy, our greatest privilege, this side of eternity, as we consider that once enemies are now friends and children and heirs with Christ, and we have an opportunity to commune with the creator of all things. I love this beautiful doctrine that we hold dear, the priesthood of the believer. That because of Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit, we, the believer, can go directly to the Father. We don't need an earthly priest. The veil is torn. The work is done. It is finished. And because Christ's work is complete, we can have a relationship with God the Father restored. One of the greatest benefits and fruits of that restored relationship is daily communion with God in prayer. We can make no excuses as to the priority of prayer for the disciple of Jesus, as it's quite clear in Scripture, Luke 18, verse number one, in the introduction to the parable of the persistent widow. Do you remember? Christ instructed the disciples that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Paul instructs the church at Philippi to not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God in everything by prayer, Paul said. 
Philippians 4, verse number 6, Paul, once again, in in Romans 12, uh, excuse me, verse number 12, he says, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in what? Prayer. 1 Timothy 2, verse number 8, I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, Paul said. And then we all remember 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, the instruction again from Paul, was simply to what? Pray without ceasing. Unfortunately, in the day that we live in, these verses that I just proclaimed were more likely to see those on a a piece of finished barnwood in our local aisle at a Hobby Lobby than we are in the crevices of our heart that are being worked out in our mind, that we're actually adhering to and obeying. And considering our ways before what God's word says about prayer. It's easy to put that on a wall. It's easy to even preach a message about prayer. But the work of prayer is in private. It's in the closet. It's in our hearts and it's in our minds. It's an investment of time to wake up early. To stay up late. Take your burdens to the Lord in prayer. Oh, that men and women in our day would make that investment of time when we understand the incredible rich value that prayer is and the gift that it is in our life. So as we consider the reflex of prayer, I'm, I'm certain I've given this illustration before. I have a hard time. I need to start cataloging illustrations after 12 years. It grows a little fuzzy, but you remember as a kid in the doctor's office testing the reflexes? I can remember, I don't know how old, sitting on the doctor's table there. I got my little gangly legs hanging over the edge and the doctor goes over and he gets this little instrument. Um, I'm sure there's a more technical term than a rubber hammer. (laughs) little triangle. Is, is that what it is, Bob? It's a rubber hammer. Okay, we're getting doctor approved terminology here. You remember the triangle? The triangle rubber hammer comes over and he knocks just below the kneecap, hits that tendon, stimulates the tendon and the leg starts flying out, does it on the elbow and the arms and checking what? The reflexes. When that tendon is stimulated, it acts as it was intended to act. It, it, it moves. It stimulates the leg. It, it, it functions as it was intended to do. Well, my, my title this evening might be goofy or silly, but I wonder, have we as believers, as followers and disciples of Christ, have we established a true reflex in prayer? Are we praying everywhere? Are we praying without ceasing? Are we staying and remaining constant in prayer? Are we obeying the command of the Lord that he gave to his disciples in Luke to ought always to remain in prayer? It's a reflex. Life happens. Seasons come and go. Sorrow, happiness, joy, defeat, Loss, gain, 
James is advocating here in this passage that no matter what life, what, whatever life brings our way by the sovereignty of God, that we should respond in what? Prayer. We should have a reflex of prayer. So the big idea of our text this evening is this, because God is sovereign over all things, he desires for his people to respond to any circumstance of life in faithful prayer. One more time, God is sovereign over all things. And he desires for his people to respond to any circumstance of life in faithful prayer. See, friends, it is through prayer that God does his work of recalibrating our hearts back to his will and his ways. It is through this means of grace, through prayer, that God recalibrates our heart back to his heart. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the distractions of this world, they fail in comparison. They they fall along the wayside as we labor in prayer. So we draw close to God in prayer. So James, right here in chapter number five, he's going to provide his readers some closing comments. In his closing comments, he finishes with some teaching on this concept and this means of grace that we call prayer. So we're going to look at verses 13, 14, maybe 15, depending on time. We're going to go as far as we can, uh, but for sure we should get through 13 and 14. But our first point this evening is going to be this. God desires his people to demonstrate the reflex of prayer through suffering. God desires his people to demonstrate the reflex of prayer through suffering. Now, if we think all the way back to the beginning of our book, I know that's been months ago now, but you'll remember that this is a Jewish audience. They've been persecuted. They've been dispersed. And they're suffering. Chapter 1, verse number 2, James' teaching was what? Counted all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So he starts with trials and suffering and difficulty. And now here at the end of the book, he's bookending his teaching with this idea of suffering. Chapter five, verse number 13. Let's read our verse here. Is anyone among you suffering? The imperative that follows, James says, let him pray. So what do we have here by way of structure? James is beginning to use a series of short questions followed by what's been referred to as staccato imperatives. Let him pray. Let him pray. Let them pray. We'll see this imperative revisited over the next few verses. This is the structure that James uses to to draw his readers into this reality and this truth that no matter what you're going through, there should be a reflex of prayer. And he starts with suffering. Are you suffering? I'm sure we all, maybe not right now at this time, you may not be experiencing a season of suffering, but we've all gone through difficulties. What we could describe as suffering of various kinds. There's no one size fits all of suffering. It's personal, it's detailed, it's specific to you, your situation, your life, your relationships. 
But James says, hey, if you find yourself in a season of suffering, listen up. What should you do? Pray. Just just pray. That probably could have been my big idea, Dave. I know you did a two word big idea. I could have done just just pray. Think about in life. How quick are we to default to other things? Other wisdoms, other truths. Certainly know that those things are fleeting, they're worldly, earthly in nature. There is no truth in them. There is no wisdom in them. But we run to them. We run to our own understanding, our own way. We take the reins of life and try to navigate through the difficulty of our suffering to try to find the quickest way out, to find that exit sign and make a beeline there so that we can stop the suffering. James has taught us through this book that suffering is nothing to sideskirt. Suffering is nothing to avoid because it's through suffering, through trials and difficulty that he is working, that he's moving, that he's changing us to be more like his son, Jesus Christ, to produce steadfastness in us, to establish patience in his people. What is a Christian to do when suffering knocks on the door of their life? There's one answer. There's a plan A, no plan B. The resource, the action, what we should do is come to the Lord in prayer. Let him pray, James says. Does this seem too simple? Does it seem like there's something better that we could do or should be doing in the midst of suffering? Does it seem like we should be crafting some type of uh, Kaizen review of a Lean Six Sigma of how I can avoid this, this, this type of suffering? Surely it was something that I did. I can go back, do a root cause analysis of, okay, I did this action, it caused this result. Okay, don't do that again. Back up and go forward. And the suffering will stop. Fortunately, life is not that easy. There's no graph. There's no spreadsheet. There's no formula that we in our own wisdom and strength can deploy to avoid suffering. Suffering is a part of God's plan. Because God is sovereign over all things, over all peoples at all times. We can trust in his providence and his care for us in the midst of our suffering. Because even in our suffering, God has it for our good and for his glory. Romans 8, don't forget it. It was Corey Ten Boom who said that we should never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. We should never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. This is the life of faith, is it not? We walk by faith and not by sight. Not knowing that we, when we wake up the next day that our life may be turned upside down. Relationships, difficulties, jobs, economic well-being, all that could be changed in a moment. And from the world's perspective, if that change is not favorable to us, 
say, wow, what a loss. Wow, what, what a shame. They're going through that trial, through that difficulty, but we can count it joy. We can have hope because God is there in the midst of our suffering. We're not alone. Why? Because we know that Elroy, God who sees, is working out his perfect plan. God is there. Never doubt that, friends, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our loss, God is there. Our suffering has a purpose. He's meeting us there in that suffering. Changing us. Producing that steadfastness, that patience. That suffering should be viewed for the Christian. That's the primary means of growth. Our walk with the Lord. Wow. Suffering. Difficulty, trial, as a primary means of growth in our Christian walk, it is. We see this through the whole of both the Old Testament and the New Testaments. Scripture is saturated with the testimony of God's grace and mercy being paid through the trials and suffering of this life. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved... Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. You may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. But rejoice that in some small, feeble way through our suffering we share in the sufferings of Christ, this great high priest sympathizes with our weakness. But every respect was tempted as we are. Friends, this reality of the Christian life has become so diluted in our modern and Western context of Christianity that the very trials and suffering that are promised in Scripture somehow become the source and trouble and doubt of our faith. This becomes the very thing that the deconstruction of faith that we see over and over and over again in different people. Why? It's because they're suffering and difficulty and trials. Scripture says that followers of Christ will experience those and it's through that that we grow and become more like Jesus Christ. So friends, let us be sure that the false gospel of the health, wealth, and prosperity, that I wake up, I give my life to Christ, and everything's going to be easy, breezy, and beautiful. This is a lie from the pit of hell. This is a lie. Following Christ is hard. Following Christ is difficult. Following Christ will involve suffering. And James is so intimately aware of this reality as he's writing to the Jewish believers that have been dispersed because of persecution. They've been suffering. There's joy. There's hope. Though my heart and flesh may fail, 
Guys, the, the, the worst that can happen to us, but accelerates our place in heaven for all eternity. God is standing ready, friends, don't forget this, to minister to us through this grace-enabled means of prayer. He says again, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Don't lose heart. Don't throw in the towel. Don't doubt. Pray. James is calling us to seek the solace and wisdom that can only come from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That is the God who, with mere words, spoke all things into existence. This God who sees Elroy, he hears and he knows. This is the God of the Bible. This is Jehovah. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This God knits you together in your mother's womb and he knows every hair on your head, even mine, that fall out every single day. He knows the count. He knows me in that level of intimacy. He cares for you. He loves you in your suffering. How do we know that? He's given us prayer. He says, come to me. In your suffering, come to me. I see it. I know it. I hear it. I'm there. I'm working. This is God's plan. So the imperative that James offers that fully meets the occasion of suffering It is perfect. It is not lacking. It is not inadequate. It is perfectly sufficient to meet us in our suffering. And it is prayer. We are not to grumble or complain. We're not to be angry or bitter, but rather the Christian should come boldly before the throne of grace again. The disciple of Jesus is to remember these realities in the midst of suffering, to take his yoke upon him through prayer. For it is easy and the burden is light. So friend, are you suffering this evening? The answer is yes, James confidently shares. Pray. God will meet you there. The second reality of the reflex of prayer is this. God desires his people to demonstrate the reflex of prayer while celebrating. Through suffering and while celebrating, James goes to his second question in verse number 13. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. The word used here for cheerful is this internal disposition of happiness. We might anticipate James to be referring to external circumstances going well with the the word used here in the Greek. It refers to more of a state of mind and being that could be void of external circumstances. So at the heart of what James is referring to, it points us back to this idea of a reflex. No matter whether circumstances are unfavorable or whether they are favorable, whether you are suffering or whether you're feeling the weight of those momentary afflictions, the response should be prayer. Now he says in this second imperative, he actually tweaks it a bit. He says, let him sing praise. 
Are you cheerful? Sing praise. This was a strong practice in the Old Testament days. We have an entire book of the Bible, right? The Psalms. These would be songs that would be sung. As a sidebar from last week, we're going to attempt to do better in intentionally layering in the singing of psalms in our, our corporate worship. So more to come on that. Those will be some of the new songs that we'll be learning in the coming days. Uh, but we, we need to layer in psalms. We need to be mindful of the songs that were sung from saints of old, how they minister to their hearts and how they can minister to ours as well. The practice is clearly established all through scripture, that the seasons of life, whatever they may be, should draw us to a place of worship. Let him sing praise. Praise and prayer really are synonymous of each other, are they not? It's simply engaging in purposeful and intentional communication with the Lord. Are you cheerful? Are you celebrating the work of the Lord? What should my response be? It should be, let him sing praise. So what does singing praise do for the heart of the believer? What did it do for you this evening when we came together corporately and we lifted up our voices? We sang the truth of the songs. Are we thankful that you have a friend in Jesus? Thankful that you can take everything to the Lord in prayer? thankful that he's the ancient of days, the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last. We can trust him because of who he is. Are you thankful for a good and gracious king? A good and gracious king. To do the heart of the believer first acknowledges the work of the Lord. Singing praise to the Lord for the believer allows us to acknowledge, to stop, do a strategic T.O., and to think and to ponder and to remember the work of the Lord in our lives, in the world, past, present, and even in the days ahead. This is what praise and song and worship does for the believer. Whatever is deserving of bringing this cheerful disposition to this individual, it should be rightly credited back to the Lord. Singing praise does this. Do you remember in our book, James chapter one, verse number 17, it reminds us of this truth, the reality of this verse, every good gift and every perfect gift is from where? From above. Coming down from whom? The father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good, every perfect gift is coming from above, coming down from the father. Are you cheerful this evening? Sing praise. The reflex of prayer. This cheerful disposition, maybe the positive circumstances that I'm experiencing in my life, it is none of my doing. Give God the glory. Sing praise. 
Worship the Lord. The reflex of prayer. This brings us to our third and final aspect of the reflex of prayer this evening. We'll get through as far as this as we can. The third aspect of the reflex of prayer is this. God desires his people to demonstrate their reflex of prayer in sickness. Desires for them to demonstrate their reflex of prayer in sickness. So before we dive into this section, I, I want to make a couple prerequisite comments concerning verses 14 and 15 to help us establish a good biblical hermeneutic or interpretation. That word shouldn't be foreign to us. We use it often through our series of Genesis, right? We want to have a good biblical process of interpreting Scripture rightly. This is our task that we have through preaching, through stewarding the Word of God and proclaiming it to the people equipping you to go and do the work of the ministry. This is a big deal that we get the meaning of the text right. So that said, I want to talk about the subtle differences between a principle and a promise uh, as a foundation before we dive into verses 14 and 15. Scripture certainly presents many principles, presents numerous promises Throughout scripture. But a principle and a promise are not the same. Okay, so what do I mean? What do I mean by that? Promises in scripture can be defined as uh, something that will be fulfilled 100% of the time. Right, so it's, it's a truth that's declared and proclaimed and it will be fulfilled 100% of the time. That is a promise. Okay. Example, as a, excuse me, as opposed to a principle, which should be viewed more as a general truth. So promise fulfilled 100% of the time, principle, a general truth. Example of this, Proverbs, another wisdom literature example, Proverbs 22, verse number six. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Promise principle. This, the reality of Proverbs 22, 6, this is generally true. This is not a promise that will 100% of the time be fulfilled in the life of our children. This is good wisdom for us as parents to adhere to, to train up our children the way that they should go. It is not a guarantee that every child raised with godly instruction will become a believer in Jesus. This is a principle, not a promise. In our immediate context of James, we have a promise in chapter 1, verse number 5. The Lord promises to give us wisdom if we ask. Hebrews 13, 5, he promises to never leave us or forsake us. These are more than biblical principles. These are promises. We can take them to the bank. We can count on it 100% of the time. These are true and will be fulfilled. So this brings us back to verses 14 and 15. Let's read these two verses. 
Is anyone among you sick? Another question. Followed by two imperatives. Let him, the one that is sick, call for the elders of the church. And the second imperative, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So principle or promise, if the elders are called to the bedside of a sick individual. We anoint that individual with oil and we pray in faith. Will this individual be raised up and healed 100% of the time? The answer to that obviously is no. So we know that we're working in the context of verse 14 and 15 in terms of a principle, right? The elders should be called. This is good wisdom. If you're sick, what should that individual do? Call for the elders. What should the elders do? The imperative there is only to pray. Elders, when they arrive, are to pray. This is the constant action. This is the imperative in verse 13 and 14. James is calling his readers to be mindful of the reflex of prayer. So what do we do with this additional activity of anointing with oil? So I'll say on the onset of this section that there are, as I'm sure you've been exposed to over the years, numerous interpretations of what is going on here with the anointing of oil. Uh, There have been some individuals and leaders that have kind of gone astray with uh, this, this idea of anointing with oil. They have read into the text some different theological constructs to be able to arrive at their desired destination as opposed to just letting Scripture speak and understanding the context of the Word of God. So if you remember back in our Genesis series, we talked about Maintaining a literal, grammatical, and historical hermeneutic, right? Don't get hung up in the words. This is important stuff because it's how we interpret Scripture. But by God's grace, as elders of Liberty Hills, Andy, Dave, and myself, our goal is that we carefully deploy an exegetical approach to every text, meaning we draw the meaning of the text out of or from the text, right? We read the text, we understand the text, we look at the history, the context, the cultural elements of the word of God. By God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we come to a right meaning of the text. This is an exegetical approach. As you look at the different interpretations of what's going on here with the anointing of oil, many leaders, preachers, different denominations have practiced eisegesis. They have layered into the word of God their own ideas 
their own biases, their own assumptions and presuppositions on what's going on here. And thus they have arrived at a destination that they have manufactured in the word of God. So what are we to do about this anointing of oil? That being said, we're going to look at this section of anointing with oil simply as a descriptive means of an activity that was done by way of a cultural norm. We see that as Jesus sent out his disciples in the gospel of Mark, that they often would anoint with oil when they were interacting with a specific individual that may have been sick or in need of prayer or healing, they would anoint with oil by way of a symbolic representation that's visible to those around them that this individual was engaged in a dedicated and purposeful time of prayer and interaction and healing with the disciples. So the anointing of oil is simply a symbolic activity that was done to demonstrate that to the onlookers that there was a serious situation. The situation was in many ways out of control of even the elders that were called to pray over them. If a healing was to occur, it wouldn't be of the elders. It certainly wasn't by means of an anointing of oil. It was by what? The power of God that raised up that individual and healed them of a sickness. There's nothing supernatural in this oil. Others have argued that the oil was potentially medicinal of that time. It could have some purposes, but largely it wasn't. This would have been a symbolic cultural reference that they often would, would partake in. Setting this sick individual apart for the purpose of prayer and acknowledging simply our inability to resolve this sickness on our own. If, if this sick person because again, this is a principle, not a promise. If this person was to be healed, it would be 100% again of the Lord's doing. So simply a descriptive section in scripture to give some context of what actually occurred when the elders were called. It's important though, as we attempt to make sense of this difficult passage, to allow the text to guide our interpretations. So where is the imperative that James is concerned about? Where is the obedience that the elders should be concerned about obeying? Verse number 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders. That's a sick individual. Elders of the church. Let them pray over him. This is the imperative. The elders, the timeless imperative, the truth the part of obedience that elders today should be concerned about when we're called that we should be engaged in fervent and faithful prayer for sick individuals. You as covenant members of our church, when you're sick, call us. We want to pray for you. Oftentimes when we know of a surgery or something that may be coming up, we'll Give you a call, we'll send you a text message. Maybe we'll come visit you prior to the surgery. We haven't been able to do many hospital visits over the last year and a half, but we would do that in, in normal times, right? We would come and we would pray for you. So the anointing of oil uh, 
it was a simple cultural practice. This could be in our day, in our time. This could be somewhat akin to the practice of uh, Dave sick, and he's calling me, hey, brother, can you pray for me? And oftentimes when I come and, and pray for a brother, what will we do? We'll often outstretch our hand. We'll put a hand on the shoulder, on a back. As we're praying for that individual, it's a, it's a cultural sign, something normative of our day that represents that, hey, there's a need here. Lord, we need you to intervene. This is out of my control. And through this cultural norm of us outstretching our hand and laying it on a shoulder on the back, we're demonstrating that there is a severity to the circumstances here. We need the Lord to work. So we spent a few extra moments there to ensure that we don't get wrapped around the axle on things that don't necessarily impact the true imperative and meaning of the text. Anointing of oil can certainly be done even today. If that's desired, if that's something that um, is practiced in certain regions or certain cultures, there's nothing inherently wrong with it, but it certainly wouldn't be prescriptive for every church and every elder to practice the anointing of, of oil to those that would be would be sick. The thing that we're concerned about in our text, the meaning, the imperative, what we should be concerned about as elders and what you should be concerned about as covenant members is that when you're sick, the reflex, the response that you should have in your sickness, in your disease, in your suffering, in your celebrating should be what prayer? To not default to myself, but to look outward and to look upward and to remember that the Lord is sovereign over my life in whatever circumstance I may be experiencing. For sake of time, uh, we are not going to move on to verse number 15. So we'll, we'll close out with verse number 14. We've laid a good kind of hermeneutic and interpretational process so we can should be able to move quickly through verse number 15 uh, and, and finish out the chapter over the next week or two. I'm giving some creative license because we're technically done with the series, so I can take as long as I want here at the end. Uh, and it's, it's a pretty great position to be in here. But I want to leave you uh, with the verses that Andy read during our worship service of Hebrews chapter number four. But before I do, a couple questions. Do you have a reflex of prayer in your life? In times of suffering and celebrating and sickness, do you find yourself going to the Lord in prayer? Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, that us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Amen. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this incredible gift of prayer. I pray that we'd use my feeble attempt to preach 
couple verses this evening to broaden our understanding of the power and the ministry of prayer. Pray more than anything, Father God, that my words would not be remembered, but your word that is eternal, infallible, inspired, and inerrant, that that is what would be remembered this evening. someone suffering this evening, Father God, I pray that they would come to you in prayer as there's someone cheerful and rejoicing and celebrating in their life. I pray that they would just break out into a glorious praise to you, recognizing your goodness and graciousness in their life. I pray that if there's somebody sick among us, that we as elders would be ready and available to come and minister to them in and through prayer, that we would be faithful to be known as a people that pray. Seek the Lord. You're still a God who desires to do exceeding abundantly above what we could ask or think. You still are a God who answers and hears the prayers of your people. You're still a God who desires to move in our midst through the faithful prayers of your church. Father God, I pray that you would do that in our day, in our time, in our church, in our communities, in our families. Let us go and be a people that pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.